We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned, as usual, to the end of the interview, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for the ratings and reviews. Thanks for the tweets, the retweets, the emails. You know, thanks for everything. Now, on to my guest for today, Sonny Han, CEO of Fulcrum, a cloud-based software platform for manufacturers. Sonny describes his journey into entrepreneurship as more like listening to the gnawing inside him rather than experience a sudden bolt of lightning. He made the decision to leave his job and strike out as an entrepreneur because he knew he'd regret missing the opportunity. He first thought of it as trying to do something. Ultimately, he found himself creating something, which is now sees as an important distinction. He did not see where he would end up, but had a strong belief that with hard work, he'd get somewhere. Fulcrum was the outcome of an interest and knowledge in the areas of small business, manufacturing, technology, and software. Much of his success, Sonny says, is from learning a lot from mistakes and failures. Like in healthcare, manufacturing tech is ripe for innovation. The challenge, however, is that you can't just jump in and offer Band-Aid solutions. You need to look at the root, says Sonny. Most people give up, disheartened when they get halfway there. But what matters in the end is that you ultimately solve a problem. He also cautions against trying too quickly to change something when some aspect isn't working. Sometimes it takes a while for a change to come fully into effect. It's easy to get caught up in the latest thing, a new strategy or tool or some shiny object, when sometimes you need to just be patient and endure the hardships until things get better. Trusting that the decision you make is the right one. In this episode, we will also talk about the role of luck in the entrepreneurship journey. Now, let's get better together. Sonny Han, 
Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, well, appreciate really appreciate you being here. You're uh, the founder of Fulcrum, um, and it's a manufacturing cloud SaaS kind of product that helps people make things. Which, as everyone knows, I love making things. Making things is cool. Software is cool, sort of, but. Physically making something's way harder than any SaaS software. Any Absolutely. knucklehead can pull that together, right? <laughs> I mean, that's actually true. Uh, <laughs> uh, any knucklehead can pull anything together in the software world. Um, but yeah, it's way harder to make stuff. Right, right. And I'm just really impressed with what you guys are trying to do. And again, there's a, I have a special place in my heart for anyone that makes anything. As everyone knows, I used to be in the semiconductor business. I don't know how hard it is to like make millions of things and load balance the line and all that sort of stuff. And we'll geek out in that a little later. But uh, before we get all into that, as I always like to say, why don't you tell us how you got to do what you're doing today? Uh, I mean, very much not on purpose. Um, I think a lot of people that I talk to, especially here in the Minnesota community uh, that want to start businesses, they are always expecting me to tell some story about like a bolt of lightning that struck me or something like that. But I think it was more of a gnawing. I I started a couple of, I wouldn't call them businesses. One, I I got together with a friend and explored some trucking stuff. And another one, I I wrote some financial analysis software that uh, ended up being used by a couple of manufacturing companies that were owned by private equity funds, but nothing big. Like I had quit my job to try to do something, but I'd never try to create something. And I know that that's a weird distinction to make, but it's a distinction that is really important to me now that I don't think I could have understood before I went through that journey. So uh, the gnawing feeling was just like, hey, I'm doing pretty well at my job. I, I know what's going on. I'm delivering value. Um, I'm I, I'm happy with the people that I'm working with, but I I really felt like it's certainly really weird feeling to have to regret not taking an opportunity. And I can't undo that. And that, it was a really, really soft whisper uh, at first and just became kind of a deafening feeling. Did I have an idea of exactly what the product was going to be? Not even close. Did I understand how I wanted to organize the company? No. Did I know who I wanted to hire and who I'd work well with? No. And every one of those things that we have now, it might change in the future, but what we have today as a company of 70 some people were just born out of the lessons learned from a lot of mistakes that we made. So I always tell people like, there is no magic story. I didn't like wake up with a flux capacitor in my head, like Doc Brown from back to the future. Like I had (laughs) very little understanding of exactly how it was going to turn out. But for whatever reason, I had like just a deep belief that trying hard was going to do something cool. And there was a lot of cool stuff to do. The places where I came from, like where, what I knew, I, what I knew were small businesses and, and medium-sized businesses. I worked with or for at some larger businesses, but what I really knew were small businesses. What I really knew was manufacturing and a little bit of construction. What I really knew was technology and software. So even within those three overlapping Venn diagrams, there's certainly fulcrum fits within that but there's a bunch of other stuff that does as well. So it could have been any one of those things. And uh, the way that we progressed as a company was really um, kind of miraculous looking back. It's like a child that was left alone for five or six hours a day, their entire childhood. And you look back and you're like, wow, I'm glad they didn't die. It kind of has a little bit of that. You had, you had my childhood, like you were watching (laughs) TV, right? I mean, you know, I, uh, 
I'm Gen X, so I'm the latchkey kids that would watch Gilligan's Island all day and before yeah. mom and dad came home, you know? <laughs> Hogan's Heroes for me. Was, Hell yeah, uh, me too. Love Hogan's Heroes. Love Hogan's Heroes, yeah. It's so awesome. Cool, cool. So really, it's just, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it, I mean, would you call it serendipity? Would you call, I mean, it It seems like I love the effort um, analogy or the, the thought of if you just put enough effort into it, something happens, because I think personally, you control the effort, you never control the outcome. And I'm always get all kind of bent when all these famous, successful entrepreneurs like, yeah, I just was going to succeed no matter what. You're like, how much of that's luck? How much of that's, you know, what, what do you think? What, what's your take? I, I think there's a lot of luck, but I think there's also a lot of luck out there is probably a, the way that I look at it. It does take a lot of luck, but I don't think luck is as scarce as we think it is. Um, I think people get lucky all the time and they just don't put in the effort. So I think the effort kind of maybe increases the likelihood that the luck is actually going to become something useful. Um, and you probably get struck by lightning in a lucky way almost every single day and you just don't realize it. Now I I have nothing, no way to prove that, but no, I, I think there was a mentor that I had in, in high school who told me, look, there's a lot of different ways to look at things we're a pretty advanced species. Now we have stock markets and we have options and derivatives trading that don't really make any sense other other than inside that particular construct of thinking. And his suggestion that I've carried on my entire life is try to reverse engineer everything back to what if it was just you and the people you're working with in a tribe out in the middle of nowhere, there's no economy, there's no money, there's nothing. Is what you're building still going to be useful? Um, If you still had all the machines and you still had all of the cars and all the roads, but nothing else is what you're working on still going to be useful. And I think that's what grounded me in this concept that I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew that the effort was going to be worthwhile is that there's a lot of work to do. I don't know what is the most important thing and what's the thing that people will buy and what can be commercialized. I know that there's problems to be solved and solving them will benefit society. So that I think was the anchoring principle that allowed me to take that leap. And uh, maybe it was lucky that I met him and he was able to give me that advice. I don't know, but I think the luck might occur many years in the past and and not really be uh, realized until way in the future. So it might not be I think a lot of times when people ask, like, if it's luck or if it's like um, effort, you could have an entire years of luck, an entire lifetime's luck that doesn't really materialize until you're 50, potentially, right? So, yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting. And and without the effort, the luck won't appear. Yeah, I think that's exactly. a good one. And I I like I like what you talked about problems to solve. So, you know, I always have the general philosophy to fall in love with a problem who cares how you solve it to a first order, but falling in love with the problem allows you to really understand it. sounds like you had a similar, you have a similar ethos on that or did I get that wrong? Yeah. I think, I don't don't know how I would articulate it, but it certainly falls within the umbrella of what you said. I think that for me, it's just (laughs) a lot of doing clever things throughout my life that were meaningless and that to me was like falling in love with a solution as a kid, when I was like tooling around on the internet, probably way too young to be doing that at the time. There was, you know, a lot of stuff out there that was weird and wild, but um, a lot of it was just going to see what somebody else wrote in code and tweaking it to see what I could do or reading about some new technology that somebody else was doing. I think I tried 
taking other people's solutions and applying it to other problems for a long period of time in my life. And that isn't just starting a business. That's like advice that people got or uh, how to treat school or classes or reading a book, all those things. I was trying to warp it into what was trendy or what I saw work for someone else. So I think just through a lot of failure, I realized, okay, actually I need to not envision what the outcome looks like. I need to go back to the root of what am I trying to achieve? What effect am I trying to generate? And I, yeah, I think that's the same as um, falling in love with the problem because the problem always exists, uh, but trying to take other people's answers and apply it to the problem that you like, that that I think is always going to be a losing proposition. Yeah. I mean, I, I, gosh, it's such an interesting idea about like looking at other people's things and seeing how you can apply it in different ways. I've always thought that innovation happens at the intersection of different things. So I was in digital health for a long time and I just, we'd sit there and look at digital health and they were 30 years behind the internet, right? You know, they were still faxing, if you can believe it, like prescriptions, right? And I would just sit there and knowing what like the IT industry and all the, you know, all those folks had done already. And I just look at healthcare and I'm just like, this is just so ripe for disruption. And I'm curious if you found the same thing for manufacturing. Cause we, you know, back when I was at Cypress, what was the name? We used some tool, this manufacturing tool, which, you know, was like MS Dawson. <laughs> it was horrible. It like, if you got the if you got the table wrong, this whole thing's just going to crash, you know. So, do, would you do you have a do you have a similar thing? Like you looked at this and said, "Oh my gosh, like this could be disruptive or different or whatnot." Yeah, I think that's the hook that gets everybody to come join the company. And what what was really enticing for me, but we actually have a completely different philosophy internally now over time that we discovered, which is there's always something that's valuable already. That MS-DOS system, it was running something. It was doing some value. Otherwise, it would have been replaced already, right? So <clears throat> the analogy we use internally is, that is, is, a, is like a tree, like imagine a tree. Whatever you're seeing in digital health or in manufacturing, that's a leaf. It's built on a small branch. It's built on a big branch. It's built on an even bigger branch. In manufacturing, it might be that this particular report that they use that's super archaic and stupid is built on top of crystal reports and this ERP that they have, which was implemented by this like large consulting firm who just has people that know this business and can whip things out, which is then based on you know a huge amount of libraries and tools that have been written and stored over time. There's something at the root of it that you got to get to before you can disrupt anything. Um, and really the, the, the root of it is, is that we're all interested as humans to add energy to material to make it more useful. That's what we're doing in manufacturing. And we want to use as little energy as possible to on as little material as possible to make the most value out of it. Um, but you can't get to that. You're looking at what they're doing right now and you're iterating on that. You have to see it understand that there's a problem, but get back to the trunk because trying to clip on a bunch of web applications onto the leaf of a branch, it's just not going to hold. It's not going to work. And that I have a lot of friends that work at digital health company. Minneapolis is, you know, has United Healthcare, there's Medtronic, there's a lot of health awesome. stuff here and a lot of health startups. And I think it's, it's very similar. It's like when you just try to iterate in a digital way on something that's working, but analog, you're going to lose because you're inheriting a bunch of baggage that is not going to carry the weight of the thing that you're building. And it's just really, really hard. And I think the better description is that it's like disheartening. It's like disappointing 
when you see something so enticing, but you're like, oh, I got to go all the way to the root to figure out how to fix this. Because when you see it, you're immediately thinking, get rich quick, quick returns on, on very low effort, because look how bad of a problem it is. And when you go halfway down the tree, you're like, oh my goodness, I, I don't have the stomach to like persevere through this. And I think like disheartening is what I would say people feel when they get halfway down the trunk. Um, and yeah, getting over that is, is really the perseverance that people talk about, I think, in terms of the persevering companies make it. Do you have the craziness as people quit? as people stop believing to be like, look, we're just, we're so close. We just have to keep going. Um, not everybody does. Right. So. Oh, totally. I mean, the demise of the digital health company I worked at was your exact problem with getting down to the root. Yeah. We could just couldn't get down to the root fast enough and it just wasn't a big enough problem. And at the surface, it was we were what we were doing is tracking the temperature and location of perishable medical supplies, so they don't spoil, like blood, tissue, you know, stuff like important, you know, unique to you. Like when they pull out your this mass, like right, that's there's only one of those in the world. And but we thought we looked at this and we're like, you know, medical error, you know, generally is like the fourth leading cause of death in the world. They just misdiagnose you. They mistreat you. You know, you would have been better off not going to the hospital. A third to a half of that is the diagnostic tool, blood, tissue, whatever. And if you don't, if you handle a blood sample wrong or a sample wrong, it gets, goes bad. So we're like, this is a no brainer. Like kids are dying. Right. But you dig down to your analogy, which I really love getting down to the root. And every step along the way, there was barriers that people were like, this is just the way we do it. Why are you up disrupting this? We really don't need this. This costs too much. We get reimbursed no matter what. And on and on and on and on and on. And you're like, I just can't survive this, you know. And you you think, you know, because you're right. And, and you know, like we thought this was a massive market, you know, billions and billions of dollars. Just couldn't do it. Just like it was, we got stuck at one of the roots. Has there been anything like that with you at Fulcrum where you had to adjust or pivot or, you know, it's, it, it's always, I always find it fascinating because every startup I've ever been at has always had that moment where, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? I mean, I think you, for me, at least, maybe I'm just bad at running the company, but I, we live that like almost every quarter. Um <laughs> I don't, I don't you're not bad. Every, <laughs> I think that's no way, man. Like that's, I love, I love your honesty. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think, I think there's a little bit of a mismover. Like it, it doesn't take you failing at your product and having to completely pivot to a different product to be considered a pivot. Like what my job is, I think in general can probably be described as navigating through and hopefully preventing at some point in time, but currently just experiencing failure in, in small ways that don't cause the, the company to fail, but navigating through it, whether it's a mishire that's in an executive position or choosing to build the wrong piece of the product or selling it in the wrong way or making a strategic change that 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 needed to happen probably a long time before it actually did. And I think the, the hardest part is, is that not every change the that you need to make can have a life cycle that you benefit from the change before you die as a company. Like you just 
don't have endless cash. Whether you're a really well capitalized Fortune 500 company, every one of those companies with enough catastrophe will run out of cash and die. And I think when you build up a brand and when you build up a lot of revenue and a lot of customers, you get to make more mistakes before you get to death date and recover, right? But for a young company, for a startup, and especially one that's relying on an investor for capital, you have to think about, all right, how 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 can I survive this most recent issue long enough so that I don't die before, before the next infusion of capital? Um, and that, that gets a little hairy, right? And I think the right way to play it from a game theory perspective is to take longer term, bigger risks right after you get the last bout of money. And then to take more shorter term decisions as you you know need to generate results for the next round of fundraising. And hopefully some of those big bets pay off and those investments you know are, are returned sooner and you, you don't have to worry as much when you raise capital. Between our series A and, and our, our seed and series A, we, we really didn't have to worry much. Uh, but between bootstrapping and seed, we had to worry a lot. <laughs> And with the market the way it is, like coming up on a Series B, I'm hoping that the, the we've we've almost six extra revenues since then, but that still might not be enough to raise a round that we want to raise. So, I think that in in general, we we just don't see things like that as humans. We 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 tend to see things as really immediate. This messed me up today. Well, you, you might have made that decision a long time ago and fixed it, and you're just still feeling the after effects of, of, you know, the change that you made months ago, that's going to take another six months to fully change in the company. And so I think one of the lessons I've learned is that as a CEO, one of my biggest jobs is to be able to say, actually, I know you're really experiencing this problem. We've already made a change that will solve this. And I need to ask you to suffer through this for another two months because reacting right now and doing something additional is actually going to make it even worse. So you need to trust me that things will improve. It's not going to seem like it, but I'm very sure of it. So that that job is an extremely thankless one, the one where you tell someone there's nothing to do about their pain. In fact, there's going to be months more, and I know it, um, but it's significantly better than zigzagging around, trying to react to every problem that exists that you, know, you might have already put a solution in place for. Wow. Huh. It's a good, it's a, actually, I like that whole concept of spend for the long term when you get the money. And then as you get closer to having to raise, focus more on short term. Huh. I've never thought of it that way, to be honest, because it's always been just build as fast as you can, you know? Yeah. And, and at certain stages, that's the only thing that you have, right? Like right. the sequencing is just survive, survive, survive. But, you know, over time, Thankfully, we we get to be we get to make bigger decisions. So interesting, interesting. And so, how I mean, you know, you you mentioned that you know you you sort of as the CEO, I, I like the term. You know, you have to you're making these little failures, these little failures along the way, and and enough so that you you can. And I also like the analogy that big companies can make more mistakes till their death date. <laughs> Small companies can't. I mean, and I've seen that time and time again, where if we make, this is the bet. And if this bet doesn't go out, we're done, right? Mm -hmm. um, how, how do you, what, what's some of the, what's the thought process on how to make those bets? You know, I mean, I'm sure there, there may be industry specific, but I, I'm just curious what your thought process and what your sort of mental models on that. Because a lot of times you're right. Like people will, want to fix the problem now that they won't be patient enough to wait. Like, look, 
this is a two month problem, or this is a two day problem. How do you kind of triage that so that you can work on the right things? And to your point, having to tell people, yeah, yeah, wait, it'll be okay. <laughs> We've got this. I'm, you know, what, what's, what's your methodology? Um, I mean, I think our, our society and the technology we have from a social media standpoint gets us to feel FOMO a lot, right? Whether we realize that's what we're feeling, we, we don't want to miss out on opportunities. So there's always somebody emailing you about a partnership. There's always somebody emailing you about something. There's always some employee saying that there's something they could do and they have really good ideas. We want to make people heard. We want to, you know, be influenced by our team. We've read all these things about how to create good community and good culture. And those are all really important. They're the number one most important things for me individually and for us as a company. But I would say that the thing that I've learned is that the path to bad choices and overinvestment or improper allocation of resources, whatever you want to call it, for me at least, typically starts with really good intentions. It starts with, I want to make sure that I'm responding to every email every minute, and I want to make sure that I'm available, and I want to make sure that I'm you know, supporting my team, and I want to make sure that I'm doing this and that. And and I think a better way to think about it is that you have limited resources. doesn't matter. That's, that is our curse as a human civilization right now until we figure out fusion and, I don't know, maybe von Neumann machines to go mine the asteroid belt. Until we figure out some of those other things, we have limited resources. And even if we do, um, just based on the physics that we know, we'll have the limited resource of time at some time. Uh, yeah, right? So. You can money, but you can't print time. Um, yeah, exactly. So if you have, if you just are able to understand that you always have limited resources, and it just becomes a question of how do you prioritize? Like one exercise that we run internally is trying to determine what what market to target at any point in time. What if every single manufacturer in the entire world wanted our product tomorrow? They're willing to pay a million dollars prepayment, whatever. You still wouldn't be able to onboard all of them. So if you had that luxury. If you were able to get every single manufacturer to be aware of us, to want the product, to understand why it's going to benefit them, you would still not be able to ingest all of them. So how would you rank them? How, If, if that was your problem, how would you create a wait list? Well, that answer also answers how should you go to market. Um, it, it's not a perfect allegory, but it's one useful tool to help think about the problem. And when that when that happens, when you force yourself into things like that, there's a lot of studies on don't have metrics like improve patient healthcare, but say, I want zero people to die of preventable illnesses or something like that, something really robust and extremely strong. It's very similar to that. Choose what the most important constraint and metric is in your business succeeding. Prioritize everything you can there until you have too many uh, irons in the fire and, and there's too much uh, confusion as to as to what's going on and or or that you've already significantly put the effort in to de-risk it and then choose the very next thing. I think our intuition is to try to solve all the things at the same time a little bit and try to like kind of, I don't know, incremental our in, incrementalism our way towards it. But actually what the better way to think about it is, and you can prove this mathematically, is to identify your constraints, rank them, and then put your investment in de-risking those things first. Yeah, that's the whole theory of constraints. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that Goldrat would probably get out of his grave and slap me around if he saw ah! how I was adapting his uh, his his teachings and his knowledge. But yeah, a, a good book to read. Yeah, yeah. I always that's actually a really good way to put it. I love that kind of um, just because there's so always so much to do, and everything's a fire, especially a startup. 
but having like, let's prioritize, let's run some thought experiments. Um, you know, I, I, I interviewed Jason Cohen the other day, a founder of WP Engine, and he had, um, I'm like, well, how do you prioritize like what innovation to work on? He's like, well, I have these Horizon 1, Horizon 2, and Horizon 3 type things. And he's like, when you're a bigger company like WP Engine, which has got 600,000 customers, I don't know how much money was, they're just printing money. Um, there's certain things you just can't do because you got to you gotta worry about sustaining the beast, <laughs> got to feed the beast. But his whole Horizon 1, Horizon 2, Horizon 3 model, which which was an interesting way to think about it, you know, he he had to think about how to take some risks and prioritize certain things. Like she's like, we have to take some risk. We're not betting the farm. We're not taking 80% risk, but we have to take 10% risk. And I think to your point, as you evolve and get more clients and more stability and you're going more, you're growing more and more, I think that landscape changes. But I think your and I'm I'm gonna co-opt it so you can yell at me. <laughs> your idea of theory of constraints really does, I think cast a light on what's important um, and how to go about driving the importance of, Hey, look, this is in our way. And I love, I love the thought experiment of if everyone wanted to use our product, go, how would that work? And you're like, well, yeah, we can't consume that. It's interesting. Interesting. It's, I think it's internally, we talk about, you know, the age old saying that people first then product then profit, but it's really important to connect. I, I didn't connect this for a long time, but prioritizing things correctly is how you give people the most fulfillment. Um, the the example we talk about recently in, internally is the James Webb Space Telescope. The project was years over over uh, over scope and, and timeline, and and billions of dollars over budget. Did those engineers not and and scientists not feel fulfillment from launching the most advanced telescope known to to mankind? No, they they felt deep fulfillment. They felt extreme joy, and it's because it was a really important achievement, and it unlocked a huge amount of experiments. If we did something of that level, and we were behind, and we needed to ask for more money. And yet, oh, we forgot. It's actually locked behind four or five other technological advancements that needs to happen before we can even analyze the pictures that come from this telescope. Well, now that fulfillment is gone, right? The closer you can get to the upstream constraint that you're solving, the more fulfillment you're giving to your team because no one like, is going to be happier than the person that really just unlocked huge growth or huge benefit for customers. And that always happens at the, the highest priority thing that we can solve. Yeah. Gosh, I like that. I like that. Unlocking the true joy and satisfaction working on the highest priority thing. Yeah. Cause I used to work at companies and, you know, the number one priority, there can be only one because it's called the number one priority. <laughs> and I would get the jarry, everything's important. And I'm all, okay. So as a young manager, when this happened to me, Okay, I guess it's up to me to figure out the priority because it's different. You know, again, it's it's there can be only one number one priority, and and the folks that don't prioritize properly, I think it does to your point create a lot of tension and a lot of struggle, a lot of dissatisfaction because it's you can't work on everything. So, wow, this has been such a great conversation, Sonny. I really appreciate your time, man. This fulcrum is. A plus. So if, if you're in the market for uh, 
manufacturing, you know, cloud ERP, go check out Fulcrum. Sounds pretty cool. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, thanks again, man. Stay safe. Yeah, thanks for having me. Keep, keep, keep plugging away. Thanks, Sonny, for being on the show. I love manufacturing people. Everyone knows this. This is what I used to do for a living for a long time. So I have a special place in my heart for people that actually make physical things. Although, you know, making software is cool too. So as promised, here are some of the actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Sonny. When you're a CEO, it's important to not give in to FOMO, fear of missing out, and react to every new opportunity or problem or what I like to say, shiny object. You need to make decisions strategically and have faith that things will work out. Yeah, I mean, this is hard to do. I will admit sometimes the grass is greener, whatever analogy you want to use. Uh, there is times where you need to change and pivot. I think we've all know that. We all in our heart. But the questions that you need to ask yourself when you have this kind of issue are, hey, am I have I been doing this enough? What are the points where I'm going to be like, this is not working? That will be an important part of the process, right? Because you really do need to say, have goalposts, have guardrails to say, okay, this is going off the rails. I definitely need to do something new. But usually you do that too fast. <laughs> so have a little faith in yourself. Have a little faith in your plan. We all have limited resources and limited time. It's vital that you figure out the most important things to focus on first. One thought experiment you might do is ask, if everyone wanted to hire me by my product, who would I work with first? How would I manage it? This can help you prioritize and target your market. I mean, this is actually a really good thought experiment, and I've never thought about it this way, but, you know, plan for success, right? If the entire world wanted to work with me, who would I work with first? And then how would I prioritize that? It's actually a really good way to think about it because then you're really going to focus on, okay, these are the most important types of customers. This is the most important niche. And we all know in order to get a beachhead in your market and your industry, you need to actually focus down and have that really compelling offer for a really small amount of people. So yeah, excellent thought experiment. Think, think, think about those questions. See how, uh, how you may want to do that. Use the theory of constraints. Sonny recommends identifying what the constraints are, ranking them, and then directing investment towards decreasing the risks that come from those constraints and also improving the speed of them. So in manufacturing, there is a, a common idea of this theory of constraints, which basically means it's like bottlenecks. That's the way I think of it. So where are the bottlenecks in your process, your manufacturing process? If you are super efficient on one part of it and then everything, your work in progress or your whip piles up at one step, well, that's the constraint, right? Is it material constraint? Is it labor constraint? Is it machine restraint? All of these things matter. And as you run a process or run a manufacturing line or anything, you, you can model all this and people try to, but generally it's so complicated that you're going to find something that you may not have even recognized. You'd be like, oh my gosh, this this part is just people, things are piling up or it hits second shift or third shift or I don't have a second and third shift and then once this is done at the end of the day, it sits there for the entire night. That's happened to me before. So ask yourself questions like, where are things piling up? Where in the process is the most time or the most effort or the most energy? 
is put into it. Then you can figure out either how to add more resources, streamline, you know, and in some cases, do you really need that part of the process? I mean, you know, when we would do semiconductor manufacturing, sometimes we try to take steps out because like, well, what are we really using this for? So those are some things to consider. So there you have it. The actionable insights from my awesome interview with Sunny. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.